Hi and welcome to Foresight with me, Greg Williams. Artificial intelligence is being applied across multiple domains with significant breakthroughs in science and medicine as machine learning and deep learning are applied in new ways. Today, we're going to explore an exciting and relatively new area of AI research, one that's attempting to replicate the complexity of human emotion. I'm thrilled to announce our guest speaker today, Rana El Haloubi, the author of Girl Decoded, a memoir of an Egyptian-American scientist looking to humanize technology and understand how we can connect with one another. Rana is a pioneer in AI as well as the co-founder and CEO of Affectiva, the AI startup credited with defining the field of emotion AI, which has spun off from the MIT Media Lab. Please note this conversation was recorded in April 2020. Rana, welcome. It'll be great if you could kick things off today, please, with a, just a quick overview of your work in human perception AI. Thank you, Greg. Hi, everybody. Um, excited to be here. Um, I spent a good five years doing my PhD at Cambridge University, so it's always back to be in touch with the UK and uh, our, our international audience as well. Um, you're absolutely right. So I spent my entire career thinking about um, you know, technology has a lot of IQ, a lot of cognitive intelligence, but no emotional intelligence, no EQ. And that is a problem not only for how we interface with our technologies, but more importantly, how we connect and communicate with one another. And this has never been kind of center stage than, than the times we live today. So um, my kind of aha moment was almost 20 years ago when I moved from Cairo to Cambridge, UK to start my PhD work. And I had this realization that I was spending more time in front of my device than I did interacting with any other human being. Um, yet this device was completely oblivious to how I was feeling. It had no idea, no, it knew a lot of things about me, but it really didn't know how I was feeling in my mental and emotional state, which in turn affected the efficacy of, of the interactions between um, myself and the machine. But perhaps more importantly, I had this realization that my laptop, this was way before smartphones, was the main conduit of how I communicated with my family back home in Egypt. And I often felt that all of the nonverbal signals that make us human, that's how we build you know, our facial expressions, our gestures, our vocal intonations. Um, these signals are the majority of how we communicate with one another. And they also are how we build loyalty, how we build trust, how we build empathy. I felt that all of these magical signals disappeared in cyberspace um, because technology did not allow for the transmission of these nonverbal signals. So that set me on a path to uh, ask the question, what if machines could understand nonverbal communication and emotional signals just the way humans can? And what kind of use cases and applications would that unlock? And I find myself, you know, 20 years on, right at the same spot with this global pandemic. Um, I hope you're all staying well and, and, and safe and physically well and mentally well. It's, it's really tough and challenging times for all of us for a variety of reason, reasons. Um, and we find ourselves catapulted into this universe where we are almost exclusively communicating online, right? It's how we work. It's how we connect and communicate with our team members and our partners and our clients. Uh, it's how we learn. I have two kids, um, 16 and 11, and you know they're, they're learning online. 
Um, it's how we are communicating and connecting with our families and our communities. And, and it's also how people are dating, right? So we're doing everything virtually. And I feel like all of these platforms, they connect us, which is great, but they almost create an illusion of a real connection. Um, because we're missing all of these nonverbal signals. Uh, the example I like to, uh, to give is, you know, if this where we have about over 200 people tuned into this uh, virtual event, if this were a live event, I would see you all and I would get a sense of the energy in the room and I would kind of take on all of these nonverbal signals and it would, I would use this information to adapt in real time you know, what I'm saying, my level of energy, uh, which parts to dive in deeper, and so on. And I find it very unsettling doing these things uh, virtually, because I have no idea how you all are feeling right now. Um, um, but with artificial emotional intelligence, which can capture facial expressions, uh, we can, I, I kind of keep thinking, you know, what if we had a real time readout of your aggregated emotional engagement, um, of course, with everybody's consent, you'd have to consent. Consent is really important. And it's one of our core values in my company. Um, but it would give me a sense of, you know, if I said something funny, would you all laugh? Um, are you engaged? Are you rolling your eyes? <laughs> um, and there are applications, say, you know, again, applications of this in online learning. Can we provide an educator with information around the engagement of his or her students in a way they would do in a classroom so that they can personalize the learning experience? Telehealth is another example. Can you quantify these signals both during a telehealth session, but also offline and provide that information um, like facial and vocal biomarkers of stress, anxiety, depression, wellness, um, Parkinson's, autism, and you can provide all of that information to a doctor, um, again, with the patient's consent, and they can use that information to, to, to provide better and personalized care. So there's a lot of applications of this technology. Um, and, um, you know, we use um, kind of state-of-the-art computer vision and deep learning and machine learning to train these models. It's early days, like Greg said, there's a lot of work that still needs to be done. It's a very complex, building emotional intelligence and decoding emotional intelligence is a very complex issue um, that has, you know, a lot of applications, but also has a lot of ethical kind of implications. And it's one reason why I wrote the book. I want it, and I wrote it for a broad audience. It's not designed for a tech or business audience. Um, but I wrote it because I wanted to engage the general public in a dialogue around how do we build ethics um, in AI. And um, I, I think the consumer, for all consumers, I think we need to have a very strong voice in kind of shaping where that goes. So I look forward to a um, exciting conversation and all your questions around, uh, you know, how, how this technology can change. Um, how we connect and communicate, especially during this uh, global pandemic. Great, thank you so much, uh, Rana. Um, I can see that we're all very engaged and, and very keen to, to hear more. Um, so just a starting point, really, talking about um, the technology itself. Um, you mentioned computer vision and obviously um, machine learning. 
Can you give us a sense, like in, in the layman's term, maybe, like how the technology actually works? How do you tell the difference uh, on a human face between, say, smart? Yeah, um, I can talk a little bit about kind of the behind the scenes of how we build this technology. So the idea is, um, is, is I, I kind of liken it to how you would teach a toddler to recognize new objects or new concepts. You have to give the machine lots and lots and lots of examples of, say, people smiling and people furrowing their eyebrows or people smirking. Um, and we use supervised machine learning or supervised deep learning where we have hundreds of thousands of labeled examples of these expressions that were annotated by expert face coders um, or voice coders because we also kind of um, build algorithms that listen into the vocal intonations of people's, uh, you know, vo voices. Um, and, and then the algorithm learns what's so common between all of these smiles. What's common between all of the smirk? It's asymmetric. What's common between an eyebrow furrow or an eyebrow raise? And, and, and so the next time it sees a new example of that, you know, a new example of an expression, it's able to kind of categorize it or attach a probability score to what that facial expression is. Um, Ultimately, the way people do it is that we incorporate multiple modalities. So we incorporate your facial expression, your gestures, your vocal intonations, maybe information about what you're doing. Are you driving? Are you watching Netflix? Um, and we incorporate all of that information into uh, an inference about your state. And we're, you know, I think it's early days. So Affectiva incorporates things like your facial expressions and your voice, but we're on the path to add gestures and other contextual information. Great. Um, sorry for dropping off there. Just shows that this is live. Vicky, thank yeah. you for, so much for stepping in. So you mentioned telehealth earlier, Rana. Like, can you give us another, some other applications that you know, you're working with currently? Yeah, I'll talk about the autism application because it was the very first application we explored at MIT Media Lab before we started Affectiva. Um, individuals on the autism spectrum really struggle with nonverbal communication. They find it, mm -hmm. find the face in particular very overwhelming. So they avoid the face, they avert gaze altogether. And so they yeah. miss out on all of that information, which affects how, you know, if they're young, how they learn and how they make friends. And if they're older, their ability to keep, um, you know, get and keep jobs and similarly relationships. So it's really, it's, it's actually really, um, you know, problematic. So what we did is we built Google like uh, Google glass like devices with cameras that face outwards and uh, it was connected to the algorithm. So it would process in real time, the facial expressions of the person you're interacting with and give you real time audio cues. Oh, great. Greg's nodding his head. He looks interested. Keep going. Or Greg's you know, looks very bored. Maybe stop and ask a question, right? Um, and we found that the device um, really increased their uh, kind of propensity to make face contact. And um, and now we're partnered with a company called BrainPower that uses Google Glass and our technology to service the autism population. So that's one use case um, that's that's exciting. And what other industries are you looking at? I think I read that you're working with the automotive industry. That there are other, I assume there's other applications in healthcare as well. 
Yeah, automotive is a big focus for Affectiva at the moment. Um, the premise is a lot of, again, a lot of the automation and a lot of the technology is focused on what's happening outside the car. And it's almost like the inside of the car is a black box. So we're focused mm -hmm. on cabin sensing so that using multiple camera sensors in the vehicle, we're able to track things like driver drowsiness or distraction or fatigue um, level of drowsiness, right? And, and it's crazy. We've been collecting a lot of data in, in, on, around how people drive. And, you know, it's, it's crazy what people do. Like we have a lot of examples of people falling asleep on the wheel, even though they know that the camera's there. Or like we have this example of a woman texting on two phones while driving, right? Um, wow. Um, and the technology can really identify these behaviors and then the car can take action. Sure. So plenty of applications in the real world, and I'm sure that as the technology develops, they'll, they'll be increasing amounts of those. Um, not, I've read that the, um, the mission of the company is to humanize technology um, before technology kind of dehumanizes us. I'm interested to get your perspective, and I guess this feeds into the book. What do you mean by that? Yeah, and it comes back to the empathy, empathy crisis you mentioned earlier. Um, because a lot of our communication is, for better or worse, mediated through technology. Mm. And but, the, but these social media platforms or these texting platforms or even the video conferencing platforms, they're not really designed considering how humans naturally connect and communicate. So all of these okay. nonverbal signals are not part and parcel of how you tweet or how you engage on Facebook, right? So as a result we're only kind of communicating about 10% of the signal, which is the words we use. The 90%, which is the nonverbal, is lost and it's not captured at all. And I think that's, um, that results in a lot more polarization. Like people are meaner online than they are face-to-face -face because, right. because you don't really see if your mean message, you don't really see how it falls on the, on the recipient. But imagine if you did right imagine if there was an empathy score or like a meanness score every time you sent out a tweet message and it would give you a, or, or, or you would have like a, a coach that says you know what you're about to send this email in all caps like don't do that <laughs> <laughs> or the slack message you know no um, so I think there's opportunities to bring more empathy using this technology and and it's it's never been more important in my opinion given how we're you know how we're living working sure and I, I guess it's also like we need to build trust again right and, and i guess i'm interested in um in understanding from you how, how you feel we can we can build trust with machines do we need to kind of forge a new type of social contract between humans and machines and well what would that look like do you think yeah, that is a great question. Uh, AI in particular is starting to take on, is becoming mainstream, right? And it's starting yeah. to take on a lot of roles that were traditionally done by humans. For example, you know, ultimately it will drive our cars and it will assist with our healthcare. It may hire your next coworker. It may be your kind of assist with your productivity and your scheduling and your calendar. Um, and so to build this kind of trust and it's a two-way street first of all so we need to trust in the machine and the machine needs to also trust that we're, we're we're kind of keeping our end of the bargain if you like and if you look at how humans built trust a small percent of how we build trust is through legalese and you know terms and conditions and all of that the majority mm -hmm. of how we build trust with you know our family members and our coworkers and other people in our community 
is through nonverbal communication is through is through these implicit nuanced cues that we exchange back and forth and then we're like okay i can trust this person right yeah and so we need to have the similar partnership with machines we need to have a similar social contract that's built on empathy and incorporates all of these nuanced signals and clearly you know, I'm sure you recognize there are huge moral and ethical implications to this kind of technology. How do you respond to those who are concerned that this type of technology really is just a, another tool for surveillance, uh, you know, in the way that we're seeing sort of surveillance increasingly used, especially at this time, uh, people are willing maybe to uh, accept kinds of surveillance they maybe weren't even a few months ago. Like, how do we, how do we pull back for that and make sure that this technology is used in the right way? Yeah, this is something that is front and center of uh, for, for me, but it's but it's been that case for the last, you know, we, we spun out of MIT 10 years ago and it's been when we spun out, we defined a set of core values because we recognize there are so many use cases of this technology. And so Ross Picard, my co-founder, who's an MIT professor and myself kind of just defined these core values. So privacy, respecting that this is very personal data and we have to respect that. That's one core value, consenting people. Um, so, so we will not allow our technology, we will not license our technology to any industry or partner where there is no clear consent. So, that, so, so all of the surveillance applications or security or lie detection where people do not know that they are being um, recorded, we will just not entertain these use cases. And we have turned down millions and millions of dollars of funding um, where you know agencies wanted to use our technology for these use cases and it's just not aligned with our core values now and we don't stop at ourselves we are very big advocates in the ai um, space around thoughtful regulation i think we need regulation yeah i would hate to see the entire emotion ai space um kind of squandered because there's so much powerful applications of it but i sure. think absolutely need thoughtful regulation sure uh, I mean, I'm sure you encountered the research of uh, boy, uh, Joy Bulimwini, who, you know, encountered inbuilt prejudice in facial recognition technology. Uh, how do we ensure that AI is equitable and accountable? Is it, is it about the data sets uh, that we're, we're using um, as, as, as much as the algorithms that we're building? Yeah, one of my main concerns around um, AI and specifically kind of facial AI or emotion AI is the problem of bias. Um, you know, yeah. how do we, so Joy B's work, um, kind of uncovered that a lot of the facial recognition technologies out there um, are primarily trained on examples of middle-aged white guys. And, but then when you deploy it and, you know, worldwide, it wouldn't work on my face, for example, it would not detect um, the faces of minority groups, especially women of color. So the way to mitigate these biases is first of all to um in the data you're absolutely right the diversity of the data is critical age gender ethnicity uh people wearing the hijab or have facial masks we had to we just finished retraining our face detector to work while people are wearing facial masks because that might be our new reality right that's very timely yeah um but we had to we had to we had to collect the data we had to basically yeah. Okay, okay, our, our data does not include pe people with facial masks, so we had to retrain to make sure that um, 
it detects these scenarios. But I also think it's critical that the team designing these AI systems is diverse because we all have blind spots. And if we're all a homogeneous group of people designing these things, we're going to have a ton of blind spots. So the more diverse, you know, the, the team, um, I think the better, you know, the higher the likelihood that this will work for all of us. Sure. Well, um, I'd like to move on to uh, questions from the audience. It's got one final question for me, for you, for you, Ryan. Um, what's the biggest challenge that you think we currently face that you, you really hope that artificial emotional intelligence might solve, maybe not in the, even in the short term, but in the medium and long term? I honestly think uh, mental health is, is an area where there a lot needs to be done. So, so today when you walk into a doctor's office, they don't ask you what your temperature is. They measure it. Same right. pressure. But in mental health, the gold standard is still a survey on a scale from one to 10, how depressed are you or how suicidal are you? Right. It's very subjective, very unreliable data. Um, but imagine, you know, we're spending so much time on our devices anyhow. So imagine every time you're on your device, it's an opportunity to capture your base, your mental health and mental well-being baseline. And if you deviate from it, um, you know, that data would be available to you. And then with your permission, you could decide to share that with a loved one or, or a family member. So I think there's a lot of opportunity around mental health. Um, and the way to get there is we just need tons and tons of data it has it's it's a scale problem it's a data problem um so if anybody out there is listening and is interested in collaborating um i'm sure there'll be plenty of interest so um if, if you don't mind ryan if you could just maybe click on the the q a yeah, at the bottom and take a look at um some of those uh questions that we've had uh we've had quite a few 22 questions yeah. in there uh, maybe right. want to take a, take a choose a couple to take a look at yeah. Johanna has a question that's interesting. Is there a difference between how men and women express facial emotions and are there any cultural implications? So far, we have around 5 billion facial frames from 90 countries around the world. Um, and so one of the first things we explored is the cross-cultural differences and also gender differences. We found, for example, that in the U.S., women smile 40% uh, more than men do. And in France and Germany, women smile 25% more. And now this is really interesting because I'm guessing there's a big Brit audience <laughs> tuned in. In the UK, we found no statistically significant difference between men and women in how they expressed uh, positive emotions, which um, I find really fascinating, um, but I don't really have an explanation. We're very smiley. <laughs> or not. <laughs> Um, so yeah, this is something that we consider a lot. We've, we've seen differences between collectivist cultures like China and, and maybe Egypt versus individualistic um, cultures like um, um, kind of the United States, for example. And um, we, we do consider these in how we design the algorithm, but also how we interpret the data. Great. If, if there's one more question you could take, Rana, that would be great. Mm -hmm. Okay, COVID has meant that more virtual events are happening. This is great for participants as they can attend more events without needing to invest time and in travel. But as you say, the experience is very different. Is your technology ready to provide that input to the speaker? And do you have examples of where your technology is doing? We are actively exploring this. It's not deployed. It's funny, we've been talking to video conferencing platforms for the last few years. 
Um, and there's always been this question around privacy and will people really want to kind of, and I feel like now it's different because people are craving this real human connection and a shared experience. We're all missing this, you know, a shared experience, feeling part of the experience. Um, so I think there's a lot of potential, not just for me as a speaker, but imagine you could all see the, the level of engagement of, you know, everybody that's on, you know, tuned in. I think that would be cool. So we're looking into that. Yeah, well, there's, there's lots of lots of questions going on there. So there's a high level of engagement. Rana, thank you so much. That's all time we have today. Um, thank you for joining us. We look really forward to following the development of Emotion uh, AI with great interest. Um, thank you to everyone out there who joined us today. We'll email you a link to the recording and more information uh, on Rana's book, uh, Girl Decoded. Uh, which is available now at all good bookstores online and uh, do support your local bookstores. Uh, we will be back uh, in the near future with more Wired briefings. So thank you so much for joining us and look forward to seeing you uh, further down the line. Stay safe.